Today's scripture reading is Galatians 4, 19 through 5, 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or in the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. These things are not being taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as then, the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, so also now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave woman, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church. My name is Nathan, and I'm the pastor of Sending here, which some of you are like, what in the world is Sending? Um, if you've not figured out by now, our church is pretty serious about sending people out with the gospel. So my main responsibility is I oversee our mercy ministry, church planting, and our international mission. So uh, if I could boil down what I do to a statement, is basically I shepherd our sent ones. Uh, and there are actually several sent ones here today, so that's encouraging. Uh, so if, if you haven't seen me before, it's because I'm normally in the background. But by God's grace, um, I've been getting an opportunity to preach this morning, so I'm excited. I did want to introduce you into my, to my family. There's a picture uh, behind me. This is Sarah, my wife, and Asia, our daughter. And uh, she has a lot of life in her, uh, if you know my daughter. So I, I'm really thankful to be here on this Thanksgiving weekend. And if for nothing else, I get to be with my family uh, and be thankful for that. This is my family. And then I get to open God's word and teach what it has to say. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are so good. Your blessings are more than we can ever count, more than we can ever number. We are overwhelmed by your grace. So as we meditate on Thanksgiving this week and this weekend, Father, we are thankful for you, for what you have done, what you are doing. Father, this morning as we have opened your word and we have read a difficult passage in Galatians, God, we know that the spirit is with us to open our ears and to open our eyes and help us to understand what you have for us. Be with us now. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So I, I didn't come from a, uh, a strong Christian home. I came from more of a cultural Christian home. And uh, I, I came to faith through a really solid church plant in our little town. There's a church that started, and I got invited to an event there. While I was there, the, the pastor preached a really clear sermon, and I first heard the gospel. It's the first time I can ever remember hearing that Jesus loved me, and he cared for me, and he wanted to be with me. So that moment I gave my life to Jesus and that man discipled me 
He taught me the, uh, what it means to follow Jesus. He taught me grace. It was a very grace-centered church. It was one of the greatest gifts I was ever given, those, those three years of discipleship. Now let's fast forward just a few years. I was trying to figure out where to go to college, um, and I decided to, to land on a Christian school near my house. Unbeknownst to me at the time, this was not a grace-centered college. I was taught the Bible. I was taught how to share my faith. I learned how to do ministry. And for all of those, I am extremely thankful. It was a really good season. However, I was also taught how to be a legalist. What is a legalist? A legalism says that I can earn or keep God's favor by what I do. I can earn God's favor by my actions, by keeping a set of rules. And over my, my four years there and then into my first ministry job, I found myself living as a legalist, as a law keeper. I was being taught to add new laws to my faith, discovering new laws all the time. Listen, I love Jesus. I wanted to follow him. I love the word of God. I wanted to follow it. But I had people pouring into my life saying, add to it, add to it, do more. They were saying things like, if you want to be a good Christian, you should dress a certain way when you go to church. If you really love the Bible, you would read a certain translation. If you really loved God, there are a lot of things you won't do. Oftentimes my Christian life was marked by things I I wouldn't do instead of things I was supposed to do. Don't drink, don't go to movies, don't listen to certain music. I could go on for a long, long time. And it's really sickening and it's really sad to think about what I was taught in how to be a legalist. Legalism taught me how to earn favor with God and from other people by how I performed. It was this outward performance. I was conditioned to perform as a Christian. I began to believe that Jesus saved me through grace. I believed that. But after that, my standing before God was up to me. I don't know if you've been in that place before. Maybe you're in that place this morning. But there's this, there's this little voice in my head, and that little voice still comes back sometimes. And it says, hey, if you do that, God will be, be pleased with you. If you don't do that, God will be pleased with you. And it was all about what I do or I don't do. That, that my actions showed or determined how God saw me. And even as I think about the, the legalism that was heaped on me and the legalism that I bought into, I get sick at my stomach. It's a sickening thought because what I was doing is I was setting aside the gospel of grace and I was seeking to earn favor with God. But then came sojourn. I had served in the church as an associate pastor. I went overseas as a missionary, all while trying to share the gospel and keep this extra law. I came to sojourn. I sat under the teaching of the word and I learned a new understanding of the Christian life. I would go to community groups and we would talk about the gospel of grace. And I was just like, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> this is crazy. That the fact that I'm both saved by grace and that I live under grace. Hear me say that again, that we are both saved by grace and in our Christian lives, we live under grace. The Holy Spirit through sojourn has helped me rediscover the freedom of God's scandalous grace. And I want to just stop on this Thanksgiving weekend and thank Jesus for this church. And I pray that that's your story as well. This church has given you life in a way that you haven't experienced it before. But if I'm honest, I still deal with the wounds of law keeping with legalism. I still find myself thinking or trying to earn favor, maybe trying to prove myself to you as a congregation, or maybe I'm trying to prove myself to God. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at when he's talking to the Galatians. Paul is calling out the legalism that has infested the church there. Legalism has come. This, 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 these Judaizers have come from Jerusalem with this extra law. And they came 
to the church and churches in Galatia and they said, awesome, you believe in Jesus? Well, if you wanna be a real Christian, you do these things and these things and these things. They're adding to the gospel. And Paul, through the book of Galatians and in this passage we just read, is calling the church of Galatia back to God's free grace, freedom under the grace of God. The whole book of Galatians is centered on this idea that Paul is trying to continue to disciple these young believers. He's away from them. Think about this. He, on his first missionary journey, he shared the gospel. He planted a church. He raised up leaders. It was the, there were these beautiful churches that were starting in this town. And he goes away and he continues his missionary journey. And at some point he gets this word that the churches in Galatia have abandoned the gospel. They've turned their back on the gospel. These Judaizers came in and they taught that to be a good Christian, you have to be a Jew first. Yeah, the New Testament, these, these letters to Paul are from Paul and from Peter, they're really helpful. And we wanna trust in, in, in Jesus for our faith, but we need to do that after we're circumcised, after we follow the Jewish calendar, after we keep the whole law. These false teachers were not just adding to the gospel, but they were teaching an anti-gospel. I want you to hear that. Legalism is not adding to the gospel, it's tearing the gospel apart. Anytime you add to or you take away from the gospel of grace, you nullify it. You make it void. Jesus plus or minus anything is satanic. Now, those are strong words. I, I, I hear that. Those are strong words. But they are words and they are sentiments that Paul has not created himself. He saw in the life of Jesus. He heard about in the life of Jesus. Paul is reiterating Jesus' own anger toward legalism. Think back to the Gospels, Jesus' interaction with people. When he got most angry, he got most frustrated, it was with the religious leaders of his day. He was always in conflict with the religious leaders. And I want us to, to understand that, that these men, these, these, these legalists of Jesus' day were seeking favor with God for, through what they did, how they performed. And then they were taking that legalism, those laws, and they were pressing them on other people. Legalism says that I can earn or keep God's favor by what I do. And Jesus responds to the legalists of his day in a really intense way. I want you to hear that. We're going to read a passage in just a second. But Jesus' response to them is with intensity. Here's what he says in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and every impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, snakes, Brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? So Jesus, who, who meets the people at the margins, who, who loves the broken and the, the adulterous and the tax collector, and who calls Pharisees and Sadducees to repentance, he stands before these men who are heaping law on people, and he says, snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? The very God of this world, the creator, the sustainer of all things is looking legalists in the eye and say, your destination is an eternal hell because they're, they're earning, they're trying to earn favor with God and they're heaping that on other people. And Paul is, is sharing Jesus's intensity and his anger toward legalism because Paul deeply loves the churches. He's been with them. He's, he's broke bread with them. He's wept with them. He's taught them from the Bible how to love Jesus. And now these Judaizers are saying, you need to add to, you need to add to. Paul is frustrated. To say he's frustrated would be an understatement. Look at Galatians 1.6. 
Paul says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So he's writing this letter back to those who he's poured into, he's discipled, and he says, you're so quickly turning away from the gospel to a different one. Not that one exists because there's not another way of hope. There's not another way to eternal life. Look in 4.11. He says, I'm fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. This is a real strong word from Paul because what he's saying is I'm fearful that you were not believers. If you can turn away from Jesus and grace back to the law, back to death, maybe you weren't believers in the first place. Maybe my labor has been wasted. So why do I share these verses looking back? I want us to see both Paul's love for the Galatians and his frustration. Frustration is not strong enough for word, his exasperation. And I don't know if you've ever been exasperated, but if you're a parent, you have been exasperated. So I have a four-year-old, and then we, uh, you saw Asia up there, four-year-old, and then we also foster, so we have a little two-year-old. And many times a day, I find myself exasperated, perfect word. And Paul shows us, shares this exasperation with me in verse 20. Here's what he says. I don't know what to do about you. Have you ever looked at your kids and say, I have no idea what to do about you. <laughs> I'm lost what to do. There's, what you're doing is illogical. It's crazy. And that's what Paul is saying to the church at Galatia. What you're doing is illogical. It's crazy. I have no idea what to do with you. So in this moment, Paul changes his tactic. He goes a different way. He's intense. He says really hard things. And then he says, if I could be with you, I would change my tone. And here's what he does. He takes them back to the Old Testament, the thing that they're longing for, the law, the old, the, the old covenant. And he says, I will show you from the Old Testament how the law is not helpful for you. He says in verse 21, um, in, a, in a theoretical question, tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? So that's his change of tactic. He's like, okay, you want to live under the law? Do you even know what it says? This is what he says to them with a bit of sarcasm. I hear you want to live under the law. Have you even read the law? Do you know what the law says? Because if you did, you would not want it to be your master. So he takes them back to the story of Hagar and Sarah in the book of Genesis. And before we get to Hagar and Sarah, I, I want to just help us understand why this story is really significant to the law and grace. Let's look at Genesis chapter 12. God gives a promise to Abraham. He says in, in chapter 12, he says, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. So the beginning of Hagar's story and the beginning of Ishmael and Isaac's story goes back to Abraham. When God gave a promise to Abraham, he said, through you, I'm gonna make this great nation. God took Abraham, who was a pagan, set apart from God. He draws him to himself and says, you're gonna be my chosen man, my chosen people. But the problem with Abraham and Sarah being the beginning of a great nation, there's really two problems. Number one, they didn't have kids. So how could they be a great nation if they didn't have a child? It was impossible. The second problem is they were old. I mean, they were like really old and past the age of childbirth. So for, for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham and Sarah, he was gonna have to do something miraculous. He was gonna have to do something impossible. But that's often how God works, isn't it? Have you ever been in a situation or a place where you needed God to show up, 
there is a promise and, and a longing that you have in your heart. And the only way that it was going to be fulfilled is if God showed up. I think that's part of God's gift for us. Not just the gift, the thing that we're longing for, but the way he gives it in his impossible way. And Abraham and Sarah knew God. They knew him so much, they trusted him. They trusted him and they waited. They waited. Let's move to Genesis 15. We see they've been waiting and they've been waiting and they're getting frustrated. So Abraham goes to God and he says, look, you have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. God took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you were able to count them, then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Do you see the, the kindness of God in the story? What, what God does, he takes Abraham out of the tent and he says, okay, Abraham, look up into the sky. What do you see? I see millions of stars, God. I'm gonna give you that many children, millions of children. And we know, we look back even to the Exodus, right? There were millions of people that were a part of Abraham's lineage. But that's difficult to understand because he didn't even have one child. And God's kindness, he reminded Abraham that he would provide. And Abraham's response was that he believed God and he waited. He waited. In fact, Abraham and Sarah waited 10 years for God, 10 years for God to fulfill his promises. They waited and they waited and they waited and nothing, nothing happened. God did not show up. Where was he? What was he doing? Why did he fail? And I feel like, unfortunately, in my life, I find myself in these places where, where I've trusted God for something. I've trusted God for a promise. Or I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. And I feel like God has not shown up. But church, be encouraged that God is a promise-keeping God. He fulfills his promises. He fulfills them sometimes a way we don't want him to fulfill them. In a timing that is inconvenient. But he has a plan that we do not understand. He is a promise-keeping God. Unfortunately, Abraham and Sarah are really tired of waiting. Ten years. God, ten years, we're waiting for a child. We're getting old. And you know what they do? They take matters into their own hands. Genesis 16. Abraham's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai had said. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. So this is really important. God had given a promise. They waited. They waited. They felt like God wasn't showing up. God gave them a reminder by looking at the stars in the sky. This beautiful promise, like, I will give you children that, that number, that match the number of the stars in the sky. But they waned. They were frustrated. And they decided to try to fulfill God's promise in their own power. And that's what Paul's getting to in Galatians chapter four. He's reminding the church of Galatia that Abraham tried to fulfill the promises of God through his own works and through his own efforts. He was tired of waiting, so he manipulated God's hand. And guess what? It didn't bring life. Genesis four, or Galatians four twenty-two. For it is written that Abraham, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through the promise. These things are being taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. So Paul takes this story 
of a promise given, but a man and a woman who tried to force their hand, who tried to live a new law. They created a law for themselves. And Paul teaches a point here. The point is, Hagar and her son Ishmael represent the covenant of the law. And Sarah and Isaac represent grace, the law and grace. So there's a clear difference between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was born through the flesh, which means that he was born through human effort. That what Sarah and Abraham did is they tried to manipulate God. They said, oh God, God, you're not gonna come through? Well, guess what? If you don't do it, we'll do it for ourselves. So even when they had Ishmael, they said, look, God, you fulfilled your promise. And God said, no, I've not fulfilled my promise. I will still give you a son that is born from Sarah. And he does. He does. He, he, he gives them Isaac. And Isaac is born of the flesh, which means that he is the fulfillment of God's promise in God's time. Look at Genesis 21. The Lord came to Sarah and he, and he said, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. God did what only God could do, and he fulfilled his promise. God put himself in a position where only he could show up. It's a beautiful story of what God's able to do. But what is not beautiful is that Abraham and Sarah sought to manipulate the promise of God. But God gave them a son when they were 90 and 100 years old. What was impossible? And I know that God often does that in our lives. He does the impossible. And Paul is telling the Galatians this story because he they're seeking to live like Ishmael. They're sons of Isaac. By their very identity, they've been created new, fresh. They belong to Jesus. And they're seeking to be sons of Ishmael, which are sons of the law. And sadly, you and I do the same thing. We do. Because of Jesus, we have God's free grace. Yet what you and I really want is we want a law. Give me a law. Tell me what to do. Give me a list of do's and don'ts. We want to be told what to do because we want to be able to control the situation. You don't believe me? Think about this. Most major world religions, when you boil them down, are simply a set of rules to follow. Most major religions that are created by man, apart from biblical Christianity, are a set of rules. Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, liberalism, pluralism, moralism, cultural Christianity. I could go on all day long. All religions and ways of engaging with the world are pretty much the same thing. Here's what they say. Be a good person. Do good things. Make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, and in the end, you'll be okay. But guess what, church? They all feed us the same lie. And what they tell us is that you can be good enough in your own strength. The law, no matter what law you have, whether it's a law that you have manufactured, one that someone has given to you, whatever it is, the law cannot save you. You cannot be good enough in your own strength. Let's remember the law given in the Old Testament was never intended to save. So when Moses walked up to the mountain and God gave him the Ten Commandments, when he received the Mosaic law and he gave them to the people of God, God's intent was never to use the law to save people. The intention of the law was to reveal our sin and to show us we need a savior. Genesis chapter 3, 15, the fall has happened and God gives a promise that through the son of a woman, a savior would come. And all throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over, God reminds his people of the promise that there is a savior coming. And the law is a further reminder that we are broken and we need a savior, that we need a savior. Look at verse 20 in Galatians 4. Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. 
You're not children of the law. You're not children of death like Ishmael. You're children of promise like Isaac. What a beautiful reminder of God's grace. This means the Galatians are sons and daughters of God. That their very identity, the core of who they are, has been changed through the gospel of Jesus. They are no longer slaves, but they're sons. They're no longer slaves to the law, but they are children of the king. Paul tells them that to return to the law would be to return to death itself. So when you and I have this longing for just tell me what to do, just give me five rules I can follow, and then I'm going to be good. What we're longing for is death. Let's look back at the last two verses of our text this morning. Galatians 4, verse 31. Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to the sloke the yoke of slavery. This whole passage this morning, and really in a lot of ways, all of Galatians is building to these two verses. This is the apex of the passage this morning. And this is what Paul is saying. With passion, Paul says, Christ has made you free. Christ has made you free. Live free. Galatians, live free. Do not run to the law. Do not run to self-effort. Do not run to self-reliance. Run to Jesus, because in Jesus there is freedom. Do not live as a slave. Do not live as a slave. Remember, the law was given to show us our sin. It was never intended to save us. Now, I'll be the first to admit, when we start talking about the the law of God and maybe the law we place upon ourselves, and then we're supposed to live under grace, there's a tension there, and, and there's a difficulty. I myself struggle with that. How do we how do we live under God's grace? So that's the question that I want to pose to us today is what does it mean to live under God's grace? What does that look like? Practically, what does it look like to live under God's grace? Now, I know at this point what we all want, at least what I want, is a new set of rules. Okay, I don't live under this law any longer. What's the new law I live under? But I think we're missing the point. Instead of a new law, what God has given us is himself. That's the gospel. We move from law to Jesus. From law to Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. When when we are Christians, we are called to obey God. There's obedience involved. There's holiness. And I think that is essential in the life of the believer. There is a way of discipleship that God has called us to. However, we don't obey, obey out of obligation, but we obey out of transformation. We don't obey out of obligation. We obey out of transformation. What this means is that our standing before God is made sure. It's already been made sure through the blood of Jesus, his death and resurrection. If we trust in him, our standing before God is sure. There's no need to earn God's favor through legalism, through law keeping. Instead, we're invited to be with Jesus. You wanna know what it means to live under grace? Be with Jesus. Enjoy him. Obey him because we get to, because that's what we want to do. It's what we want to do. We obey because we've been transformed from the inside outward. When we trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into us and he begins to change us. It's called sanctification. We're changed on the inside. And as we're changed on the inside, outward is affected. Our actions, our obedience happens. But law keeping is not the answer. Let's look at what Jesus' invitation to weary law keepers like us in Matthew 11. Jesus tells us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, 
because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here Jesus is talking to a whole generation of law keepers. Think about his context. He's in Jerusalem, he's in Galilee, he's around Jews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are just heaping laws, heaping laws, do more, do more, do more. And they can't, they fail. They try and they fail, they try and they fail, they try and they fail. Their whole life is marked by trying and failing. And to these people, Jesus says, come, come to me. Come to me, take my yoke. My yoke is easy. I'll take your yoke from you. I will fulfill the law. Come to me and find rest. And friends, I don't know where you are today, but I'm weary. I'm weary of in my heart longing to earn favor, trying to prove myself. And Jesus says, come to me, you have nothing to prove. So what does it mean to live under grace? It means to come to Jesus and find rest in relationship with him. To live under grace is to be with Jesus and find rest. It means that you can be with him and enjoy him. It means obeying him because you love him, not because you're a slave, but because you're a son. Do you hear me? You obey Jesus not because you're a slave, but because you're a son of God. Earlier, you got to meet my, my beautiful family, um, Sarah and Asia. But what you may not know about my family is my daughter, Asia, is adopted. We have a picture of us right there. That's normally how our relationship is. We just laugh all the time. Uh, My daughter has exponential joy in life, um, which is kind of amazing because her story is really difficult. But she has this beautiful joy. We got to adopt her when she was a month old because a year earlier I had battled with cancer and, and part of the cancer and part of the chemotherapy, the result of that was I wouldn't be able to have kids. So we struggled with infertility, and and I know infertility can be a really painful thing. And there are people in this room right now who are struggling with infertility. And to you, I would say, the Lord is still good. He is still faithful. And through God's kindness, God gave us our daughter, Asia. I wouldn't have it any other way. I can still remember uh, being in the courtroom and sitting in front of the judge, and the judge asking us, are you sure you want to adopt your daughter? And I was like, dude, you're crazy. Of course I do. He said, once you do this, once the gavel, once I hit the gavel, the adoption is final. Your daughter is yours forever. Forever. And these are, I'm gonna quote him, okay? He told us, your, your adoption is irrevocable. It's irrevocable. And what irrevocable means is that the adoption cannot be changed. It cannot be reversed. It is final and forever, that when he hit that gavel, my sweet little daughter was mine forever. No one could take her away. She couldn't unbe mine. She was as much mine as if she was a biological child in every way. And you know what? When I brought my precious daughter home and she's in my home now, do you think that I give her a set of rules that she has to follow in, in order for me to love her? Do you think that's how our house works? Or do you think that she has to measure up to some standard that I set for her to be accepted? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. Yet somehow that's how we relate to God. We were like, I have to earn favor. I have to earn standing before God. But you know what? My daughter is loved. She is accepted no matter what, period. She is my daughter because she's mine. 
She's mine. Not because of her behavior. I find joy in just being with her. One of my favorite things in all the world is to sit Asia on my lap, cup her face in my hands, ask her about her day. We sing together. We laugh together. And I find joy simply in she's my daughter and I'm with her. And friends, that's how God sees you. That's how God sees you. He sees you as his child. He loves you and accepts you because you belong to him. Not because of what you produce or what you're able to do or not do. He loves you because you belong to him. This is what it means to be freed from the law. It's to belong to Jesus. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. This beautiful passage, Romans 8, verse one, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation, no guilt, no shame. None of that's gone. But we're not just uh, given no condemnation. Verse 16 says that we are God's very own children. Think about the freedom that that brings when you're standing before God is simply based on what he's done, that he is pleased with you because you belong to him. That you can love and obey God because you're his. You can love your neighbor, not out of guilt or shame, but because you love God. You can open your Bible and read it in the morning for a daily devotion, not out of obligation, but because you wanna be with Jesus. You can serve those around you, not because you have something to prove, but because your identity is secure in Jesus alone. Friends, the way of the Christian is not law-keeping, but belonging to and being with Jesus. Let me say that again. The way of the Christian is not law-keeping, but belonging to and being with Jesus. You want a law? That's your new law. Be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. Find your identity and your longing and all those things in Jesus alone. What God wants from you this morning is not more effort, not more trying, not more striving. What God wants from you is you. That's what God wants. That's what it means to live under grace. It means that you are found secure in Jesus and you can live a life of obedience and joy because you belong to him. He wants you to come to him and he wants you to be with him. And God has given us uh, this invitation He's given us a reminder of his invitation to be with him when he sat with his disciples who were his children. They were followers of Jesus and he broke a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way he took the cup, said, this is the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you. As often as you eat and as you drink, you are remembering my return. And church, this is an important reminder of communion because what communion is pointing to is the truth that we are found in Jesus that we no longer have to keep the law. So if you're not a Christian today, this meal is not for you, but you do have an invitation and the invitation is to be with Jesus. Bring your law keeping, bring your striving, bring your trying and set it at the feet of Jesus and just be with him. Become a follower of him. If you're a Christian this morning, your invitation is not much different. If you're law-keeping, if you're striving, if you're trying, embrace Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus and find rest because communion means you don't have to strive, you don't have to prove that your whole worth is found in him alone. 
The way we uh, observe community here at Sojourn is there'll be stations up front, stations in the back. Um, You can form lines and break off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, whatever your conscience permits. Uh, To your right, we'll also have some gluten-free communion. Let's pray.